I, I, when I was in the midst of my dissertation work, which one thing you do when you're doing that kind of thing is you do lots of reading. Well, one of the articles that I read, one of the, uh, it was a journal article that was then made part of a book, a whole collection of essays or, or articles were in this book. This one stood out to me because it had a great title. The title was, What Did the Prophets Think They Were Doing? What did the prophets think they were doing? And, and, the, and the article was, was, if I remember it correctly, it was, it was regarding, I say if I remember it correctly, because there's somebody in the room that heard me reference that in the first service, and they actually went and found the article. You are a tough crowd. <laughs> the article was about, well, what, how did the prophets perceive their own ministry? What did they realize about that moment that they themselves were in and a part of? Did they see themselves merely as preachers to a given generation, taking the word of God as given by Moses, expositing it to these people in their circumstances? Or did they understand that God was using them in a way that was even bigger than that? That the words that God would speak through them, that God in fact was speaking through them. They were not just preaching with the aid of the Holy Spirit, but God was speaking through them word that would endure, ancient words to us today, but words that would endure across the centuries. What did the prophets think they were doing? I was thinking about that as I came to Nehemiah chapter 8 in our, in, our, in our series through the book of Nehemiah, where Nehemiah has been about the business of building up God's people, building a wall in order to build the city of God's people who will show God to the nations round about them. And in Nehemiah chapter 8, I was reminded, uh, so I borrowed that title. I titled our, our, our message this morning, What Does Your Pastor Think He's Doing? Come on, you've wondered that at times. You've talked about it at times. What does the pastor think he's doing? It can come out all kinds of different tones, right? But in this moment that we share together, Sunday by Sunday, what is it that I think I'm doing here? Well, for that matter, what is it that you think you're doing here? What do you think you're doing? What do you think you're doing in gathering? We poked at that a little bit with the kids. What do we think we're doing gathering together as his church on this day? Well, Nehemiah chapter 8 tells us something about that. So without dilly-dallying any further, I want to jump into Nehemiah chapter 8. What do we think we're doing? Nehemiah chapter 8 and from verse 1, and if you're following along in the church Bible, you'll find us on about page 403. Nehemiah 8, verse 1. I'm going, to, I'm going to read a couple of verses, section by section. I've given you an outline on the back of your bulletin so that you can follow along there as well. First three verses. And all the people gathered as one into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So first of all, what, what these people thought they were doing, what it is that we think we're doing together, we are gathering to hear from God together. That's one of the things that's going on this morning. 
That, that is, in some ways, it's going to be mitigated through the preacher. It's mitigated through the lyrics of the songs. But we come expecting that the Holy Spirit is with us. That the Spirit not only indwells each believer, but Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that the Spirit of God indwells His church, His local assembly. That we are the temple of the Spirit collectively as well as individual believers. And so there's something special that the Spirit of God chooses to do in this way among us. We gather to hear from God together in encounter with God. You see that in verse 1. First of all, you have ready listeners. They come intending to hear from God. They come intending to hear God's Word. They are ready listeners. Both adults and, did you catch it, not only adults, not only the men and women, but all who are able to understand. And you'll be surprised how, how low in age that goes. That um, very young ones will understand something of what's going on. I know at times having young ones in the service as well will lead to a distraction here or there. You know, we'll do that. We'll, thank you. We'll embrace that. Right? That's part of being family together. So, and, and the things that are learned and picked up by a habit that starts when they're wee little ones and then as they're toddlers and then they grow a little bit more and they start talking about something that they heard in the midst of worship together that brings that ongoing conversation that lives out what, what God instructed Israel to do. That, that in Deuteronomy chapter 6, that the, that the fathers were to teach these things to their children. And that would happen in, the, in all the avenues of life. Along the way, in the midst of activities, there would be conversation and questions that arose. So they're ready listeners, and the ready listeners call for a prepared teacher. There's some intentionality here. There's some preparation. Um, I remember, again, in some of that work, reading some's, some's perspective that there's not a lot of preparation that should, in fact, go into a sermon. No, do the Jeremiah thing. You know, open your mouth and I will fill it, the Spirit says. Just to get ready and come up and open your mouth and start talking. And yet, Ezra is prepared. Ezra is a, not only a priest, but he's a scribe. He is a student of, of God's Word. He's an expert in the law. He knows the writings of Moses inside and out. He's familiar with the prophets. So he's able to bring that understanding far more than the average person who's listening to him has. And Ezra then, they recognize there's value. We, we don't want just anybody. We we want to hear from Ezra. Ezra came to, back to Jerusalem out of the exile with a bunch of attorneys 14 years ago. And yet we haven't heard from him lately. Well, he, he's been kind of in the background. We don't know where Ezra's been up to, what section of the wall Ezra worked on. We, don't, we haven't heard from Ezra up till now in the book of Nehemiah, which is curious in itself. But now they want to hear from God. Now they gather to hear God's word and they call for Ezra. Our, our church is blessed. We, we mentioned BP Academy earlier and that one class that Todd and Todd are a part of where, they're, where, where it's focusing on how to study your Bible for life change. And uh, they're, they're taking those things and then they're, they're unfolding them to others. That's it. That's what this is all about. Equipping the saints for the work of ministry is our, that, that's our, our, our purpose verse for BP Academy. That's what we're about. 
and, and they were equipped and passed it on to others, ministering to others with us. A wonderful story. A prepared teacher brings God's words, and, and, and we're able to do something like BP Academy because of the teachers that God has gifted this church with. Ephesians 4 talks about those, those who minister the word, the, the, uh, the apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. They are gifts God has given to his church. And we thank God for those that are gifted, um, who, who, who teach among us here. Their ears were attentive they're not just there ticking boxes. You notice that in verse 3? Their ears were attentive to the word. They came intent to listen and understand. They're not just ticking boxes. It's not, well, you know, we're supposed to go to church. God says so. So, you know, God is pleased with my sacrifice. Man, I sat through another one of Bob's sermons. Oh, man, I mean, 40, 45 minutes? God must surely be pleased with my sacrifice of faith to him by sitting through the whole, I didn't even go to the bathroom. I, I stayed there. I, I endured. Good job. Well done. The Lord will be pleased. We, we sometimes think of the things that we do. Well, I'm supposed to do that. We're supposed to go to church. You know, I'm supposed to read my Bible. I'm supposed to read my Bible. So, so okay, I'll, I'll fit some Bible reading into the day. You know, convenient way to do that. Maybe when the commercials are on, I could read. And then the next commercial, I'll read a little bit more. I'll get through the chapter that way. Do you ever find yourself reading and you're reading along because I'm supposed to read, I'm supposed to, you know, so I want to read today. And, and yet I read and yet 15 minutes later, I don't even remember what I read. Sometimes I'm reading my Bible and I get down to about halfway through the chapter and I realize I have no idea what I just read. Because I'm going through the reading motion, but my mind is circling away somewhere else. It's probably just me. I'm probably the only one that it happens to. But that wasn't happening on this morning. They were attentive to the Word of God. They came expecting to hear from God there. What if we come together on Sunday morning expecting to hear something from God for me? And I come then, I remember years ago, it was Pastor Ken Ortiz in Spokane, Washington, in fact, that as a young man, I sat there and I, and I wrote a note in the margin of my Bible that day. And I said, you know, I get more out of God's Word when I listen as if God had sent Pastor Ken specifically to talk to me this morning. I learned something. I was, I was, I was a young guy. I didn't know a whole lot, but I figured that out somehow. And it changed things for me. They came expectantly. You know, I thought of we prayed uh, just last Sunday evening. And then through the, through the next 24 hours, we prayed for the persecuted church. And I think of those who gather in places around the world, not knowing if that Sunday is the Sunday a bomb is going to go off in their church. Not knowing if that Sunday is the Sunday that men are going to burst in with AK-47s. That happens around the world. Not knowing that if this is the Sunday that, that uh, state security agents are going to show up and people are going to be arrested. And yet, even with that risk in the background, still they come. Still they gather. Because there's something about not forsaking the gathering of ourselves together. Hearing from God together, encountering, encountering the Lord in ministry together. And that's what we find in the next couple of verses. They, they, they're participating worshipfully and submissively. The, 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 the congregation are actively participating in what is happening there that morning. Look at verse 4. Ezra the scribe 
stood on a wooden platform. Well, ours is carpeted too, but good plywood. They had made for that purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah and Shema and Aniah and Uriah and Hilkiah and Maaseah on his right hand and Padiah and Mishael and Malkajah and Hashum and, here's one of my favorites, Hashbadana. You're looking for a name for your next son. There it is, Hashbadana. It hasn't been taken yet. Zechariah, Meshulam on his left hand, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was up above them on the platform. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord and the, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. There's an active involvement. There's a platform that's been raised up for this purpose so that everybody can see that each person can have that own encounter with the teaching of God's Word. They're not hidden away from who is it that's reading because they can't see over the heads of others. There's, there's no private interpretation as well. Do you notice the others that are on the platform with Ezra? And we're going to be introduced to, 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 to a host of, of, of 12 or 13 Levites as well here, here in, in the next section. That, that Ezra is not alone. That, that Ezra also is accountable for what he says. Ezra is accountable for what he proclaims to the people and how this is explained. It reminded me of, of some churches that used to have, well, the, well, the pastor's preaching. And there's the deacon bench behind them. And there might be on that side, and they're on that side, and, and they're, they're ready. They're primed. The pastor gets off on someone on one of those crazy tangents again. He starts talking about politics, or he starts talking about needing a new Cadillac, and they are going to be up, and they're going to end that part just right quick and get, get back to a gospel hymn or something. That He's accountable for what he says, and there are others around them. Ezra is not the pope here. Ezra is the messengers is the messenger of God's word. I'm reminded of one one um, man who passed on to me. What's happening in this moment is that I I see it as look what God is saying, not to you. Look what God is saying to us. That God is speaking here through His word by His Spirit to us. That's the moment that we're in. It's not Ezra's moment. This is God's word. There's a respect then for God's word. There's the standing. And we, we, we often will do that as a church when we're doing a scripture reading. We'll stand. And, and the pattern comes from here. And we don't always do that. Like often I will, I will read three verses and we'll talk about those verses. Then I'll read three more and we'll talk about it. And you would be up and down. And that would distract you from what God's word is saying. So we don't do that. Always, but but there's 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 something else that goes on here. We we silence cell phones because we want, we don't want to be distracted. We want to give our attention to God's word, and we're intentional about it. We're not having side conversation. You know, you can watch a movie. If the movie gets a little slow, well, you just start talking, asking questions, comparing it to something else, and there's these side conversations going on. But. This is not that. This is not that kind of moment. We, we, we focus. This is not movie with a popcorn. This is something. There are a few things we do that are odd even in our culture. This is one of those 
strange places on a Sunday morning. We do things that are odd in our culture. Where else do you go and sing a handful of songs? And then you hear somebody talk about something from a really an old book, ancient words. Where else does this happen? Yet this is something that God has been doing with his people for 2,000 years as the church. Long before even all the way back to Moses, this is what God has been doing with his people. And we're a part of that. We're a part of, no matter how times change through the ages, we're a part of something that God does with his people through the ages. And he's invited you into that, into, in, in, into his moment. We, we come then expecting an encounter with God from his word. That's what the pastor thinks we're doing. And we're coming together to encounter God in his word and to respond accordingly. They say, amen, amen, let it be true. They're confessing agreement with the good proclamations, the blessing, the good speaking, which Ezra is saying about this is who our God is. It's, it's like a declaration of praise, and the people are saying, yes, that's right. They're lifting up their hands in worship. They are bowing down in yielded submission. They are worshiping. They, 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 they fall with faces to the ground. We will we'll say at times, we worship in song, and we worship in word, and we worship in prayer, and we worship in giving. That, all that which we do together is worship. And what we do out of that, what we do from that, what we do from here in the midst of the world, among the nations, also is worship. Paul says to present our bodies a living sacrifice, that this is our service of worship. Not only here, but from here. And so... Because this is what this gathering together and hearing the word is, they privilege the word. Look at verse 7. Now there are these, now there are these Levites that are gathered together. Yeshua and Bani and Sher, Rebiah and Jamin and Akub and Shabbatai and Hodiah and Maasiah and Kelita and Azariah and Josabad and Hanan and Peliah. The Levites, these helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. And some wonder, were these on the platform with, with Ezra? Are these scattered among the people? And so Ezra's reading a bit, and then there are people teaching in kind of huddles all through the crowd. And it's not really clear exactly what's, what's going on there, so you can, you can land either way. But there are additional people behind, beside Ezra who are participating in this so that the people hear and they understand. And there's the core of it. Verse 8. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly or making it clear. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. I like to unpack those, those phrases this way. They read from the word. They heard the word in itself for itself. Ezra, the 13 Levites, etc., and then they explained it. They made it clear. 
They, they made clear what the word said. There's explanation that goes around it. Some of the words go back to Moses. There are parts of, of, the, of the Hebrew Old Testament that are old Hebrew still. And this generation might not understand all that's going on there. They might not understand some of the background and who some of the peoples are that are being talked about. What some of the specific warnings, how that relates. And so there's explanation around the word that's being given. Remember, they, Ezra is now talking to a people that are a thousand years removed from when the law is given to Moses. And Moses then gives it to the people, and the people begin walking and living in light of that. A thousand years have gone by. Some things haven't changed at all. Some things have changed considerably since then. There's some explaining going on. They gave the sense. Out of that explaining and interpretation, there's also what difference does this make? Understanding it in its context, understanding it now generally, in principle form, how do we apply that into life? And then there's a response by the people. So the people understood what does God's historic word mean for them today? As Ezra and the Levites read and explain and give application out of God's word, the, the people understand it, and now they're going, to, they're going to respond in life to that. There's a pattern here that we use in our, in our discipleship groups. It's called Hear Journaling. And I'm intended to lay that out for you in your notes, but um, there's one mistake in the notes at this point, and it's mine. So bear with me, or I could say, hear me out. Here is the pattern. Here is an acronym, H-E-A-R. The first H is not for here. The first H is for highlight. Highlight, oh, already corrected it from the first service. Look at that. They are good. The, the highlight is what, okay, I read this morning. And as I read this morning, there was a particular verse or a particular paragraph, a, a key part here that jumped off the page at me. Have you had that? You're reading through this chapter and all of a sudden somebody gets, and you stop there, in fact. And, and God is speaking to you here and you know it. And, and so highlight that verse in your journal. Take some notes here. Retain something out of this for yourself. Explain it is the E. Explain that, that verse that you've highlighted now. Explain the meaning of that verse. Now we're going to do some interpretation. So we're, we're, we're observing, first of all, we're reading the Word. Now we're going to do some explaining, some interpretation here. We're going to understand what is the meaning in the midst of this passage, in the midst of this historical setting, in the midst of this context within the larger chapter and even the book as a whole. For instance, here in chapter 8, now all of a sudden we're reading the Word. We're not, we, we haven't got the stonemasons at work any longer. We're no longer gathering stones and refitting them back into the wall. We're not now turning to start building up houses. We're using God's Word and building into the lives of God's people. There's a shift in the emphasis in Nehemiah here now that starts in chapter 8. And so... That's part of the, of, the, of the larger context, understanding what the thrust here is because of where it occurs in the book and within this chapter. And then out of that, we make some principles. A principle you might pull out of, out of chapter 8, an applicational principle, is that God's word is intended to be understood. 
It's not that God is keeping score and he gives me credit for how much time I spend reading. God's word is intended to be understood so that I can follow it, that I can live in the light of it, that I can respond to it in life, that my faith actually is a response to what God has said. Faith in terms I'm believing something. I'm believing what God has said. And so there's an, applica- an applicational principle here. In generally, general, God's word is, is to be understood and applied by God's people. That'd be a general application. That doesn't tell me what I'm going to do. That doesn't tell me how I shall apply it. That's going to be my response. So we highlight a particular verse. We, we explain, interpret it for our own benefit so that when we make an application, it's not just a pulled out of the air. Does that verse really apply that way? We've done a little work to ensure we understand what God is saying so that we apply it in the right direction. And now, how, what am I going to do? How am I going to respond to God's word? That's the last part of that journal entry. So I highlight God's word, a particular place where God is speaking to me. I explain it. I understand it. I apply that in a general principle. This is true for God's people. How do I live in that? What do I need to do? It may be a verse that talks about fleeing temptation. Well, what is the temptation that I need to flee? And what will I do to get away? What will I do to create some distance between me and that temptation? What What action will I specifically take in order to create a fence between me and that particular temptation. That would be my own individual response. Sometimes a response might even simply be a prayer. Sometimes the application out of God's word is God's people need to know this. Jesus has said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give to them eternal life and they shall never perish and no one will take them out of, no one can take them out of my hands. Well, What might have grabbed you in that verse was, they follow me. I live out my life with Jesus, this new life he's given by following him. Or it might have been that right now what your heart really needs and what God showed you out of that verse is that focus on, and no one can take me out of his hand. And that's a knowing application. I need to trust that. I need to believe that. There's a promise there that I need to believe. And I'm going to respond to that in prayer. That's my response. Not doing something, but trusting something. Okay, so that core of responding, privileging the word, that God's word takes its priority for me so that I give time to understand it. I give time to apply it. I give time to individually respond to it. And when you do that, at times there's going to be conviction. God's word will speak to you. God's word will be light and it will shine as a light in a corner of your life. You would just as soon you kept that cupboard door closed. You ever been in a particular cupboard, maybe in the kitchen, maybe in the garage, and you opened up and you found something that had been there way too long. And it needed light shined on it a long time ago, but there it is in all of its fuzziness. It's time to clean that out. And God's word will shine, and God's word will convict, and that happened here. When they gave themselves to sit under God's word, it brought conviction to their hearts. It pointed out their sin. It reminded them of their guilt. That'll happen. Don't run from that. 
let's, let's look at verse 9. Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest, and the scribe, the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to the Lord our God. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, this day is holy, do not be grieved. Now, if, if he's telling them, Don't mourn, don't grieve, what does that suggest? It suggests to you that they are mourning, that they are grieving. If I, told, if I were to say to you, well, don't just sit there, what would that suggest? You're sitting there. I'm not saying that. Right now, sitting is fine. But, but they're, they're, he says that to them because that's exactly what they're doing. They are mourning, they are grieving because God's word has pointed out Israel's sin through their history. In fact, God had warned them in advance. God had told them that they, they as a people were going to follow the gods of the nations. When they were to represent their God, the God, to the nations, instead they go after the gods of the nations instead. And they are unfaithful to the one true and living God. And it... it ends up, just as God said, it's going to end up in the land spewing them out. And the land is going to get its rest and they are going to go away into exile. If they will not walk with God according to his ways, they, will, they cannot then enjoy the riches of his inheritance. But then, then, God's word in the law, in Deuteronomy, also said that from that exile, God would bring them back. That God would restore them again. And that's a pattern that echoes through the Old Testament as well. It's promised through the prophets. It's, it's, it's mentioned even when Solomon dedicates the temple. So the, all of this is before them, and they're reminded now, as they've heard from God's law, they're reminded of all the things that they were specifically told by God not to do, and yet they and their four generations have done. And they're mourning and they're grieving the guilt of their sin. And they need to let conviction lead to joy. It's not that God's word should not convict you. Don't live there. Don't live in conviction. Let the convicting work of the Holy Spirit by his word have its full work, which is to move you on from conviction and guilt to repentance and rejoicing in God's forgiveness and grace. What's going on here? He says, this is not the day for that. This, what day is it? Then This is not the day for grieving. This is not that day. What day is it? It is the first day. Of the seventh month. It is the Feast of Trumpets. The Feast of Trumpets was the Feast of Ingathering. All of the harvest has ended, and, and now the harvesting is complete, and you have this ingathering feast. And I'm reminded of the words of Jeremiah, of Jeremiah, who says, in anticipation of the captivity to come because of Israel's sin, he says, Summer is ended, the harvest has come, and we are not saved. It's a miserable declaration. You're glad you came and heard that this morning. And yet, this is the Feast of Trumpets. This is the Feast of that ingathering. But now, God's people have been gathered. 
God's people have been returned and restored out of their exile. They are again in Jerusalem, and the good hand of God is upon them, and the walls have been restored, and they are going to rebuild God's people in the midst of the rebuilding of the city that they will again proclaim the glories of their God to the nations around them. God has restored the privilege to which they were called. Yeah. When I read God's word, I will be convicted. And yet let conviction have its right work. That I confess. And that if I confess my sin, God is grateful or, or, or is gracious and just. He's faithful and just to forgive my sin and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. You may have come here this morning wondering, would God really forgive me? Will God really forgive me again? Will God really keep forgiving me for the same thing and yet again I stumble? If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just Faithful to his promise to us just because Jesus paid for that too. It's covered. As far as the east is from the west so far, he has separated our sins from us. Our guilt, our sin, our iniquity, he remembers no more. And so Nehemiah is saying, now is not the time to grieve our sin. Now is the time to give thanks, to rejoice in God's restoration. Because the joy of the Lord is your strength. And I understand that as God's joy for you, God's joy over you, how he rejoices over you with singing. You know, I, I try to keep up with birthday cards for folks in the church. One more reason why. Fill out that communication card. Give us your name and address so that we, we know where to send the birthday card. Once a year, it's not a big deal. It's something. But it gives me a chance just to pause in the week and pray for those people that I'm writing in, in, in those birthday cards that week. And yet, I, I'm a creature of habit. I often write the same thing not always original. Often what's on my heart is that prayer of Paul for the church there in Ephesus. He said, this is what I want for you. This is what I ask God regularly for you. That you would, he said, know the hope of his calling. That you would know and understand God's glorious future that he has for you. The third thing he mentioned is that you would know the greatness of his power toward us who believe. That same power that even raised Jesus from the dead. That he said, I wish you, I, I want you to be more and more aware of and knowing and experiencing that resurrection power in your Christian life. And not only that, right in the middle of those two, in verse 18 and 19 of Ephesians 1, he says, and I want you to know. I want you to know what is the... Um, Let's see, the hope of his calling. The greatness of the joy of his inheritance in the saints. And that is not the inheritance that he has for us. That's the hope of his calling. The, the, his, the, the, the joy of his inheritance in the saints is God's joy over you. That you are precious to him. 
You are his treasure. You are God's future. In the same way that the young parents rejoice over that child in their arms, so your God rejoices over you. And there is your strength. You see, guilt is not, guilt is a short-term motivator. Guilt is not the strength of the Christian life. God's grace and forgiveness is your strength in the Christian life. God's gracious forgiving and restoration of you, that's where your strength comes from. That's where you live. That's why the gospel is so important, not merely as, okay, I, now I know about Jesus, I believe in Jesus, I have an eternal home in the future. No, the gospel is the strength of our life day by day. In the midst of broken people, in a broken world, we need to remind ourselves of God's gracious restoration in his great love for us. And one of the ways we do that is by sharing that joy with others. Look at verse 12. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink, to have a party, to eat those rich, fattening foods that they don't normally eat and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, to send portions to those who did not have because they'd understood the words that were declared to them. The gospel has had its work in them, and they are a, a grateful people. And a, a grateful people become a giving people. A people who are caught up by the goodness of God toward them are a people that can't help but give it away to others instead. You major in the gospel, and it'll leak out of your life to the people around you. You glory in what God has done for you in his gracious forgiving of you, and it will leak out of you to the people around you. A grateful people are a giving people. We have a, a small group. It's a serving group called the Loving Hands Ministry. And these ladies came up with an idea. They said, you know, we're going to have a, a holiday bazaar. And some of these things that we work on and sow, we're going we're to gather them together. And they went to work and they produced all kinds of stuff for this holiday bazaar. And they held it yesterday. And in that one day yesterday with all these things that they had worked on together, they raised $6,000 for the Options 360 Pregnancy Clinic. A grateful people. Look what God has done for us. A grateful people become a giving people. What can we do for those in need around us? How do we share God's party? How do we share God's joy with others? And then they take the next step in what God says to them. Verses 13 to 18 describe that as they're hearing from God's word, they realize there's this feast of booze. We, we've been sort of observing it. We've been marking it on the calendar. We have been noting the sacrifices that we're supposed to give on that day, but we haven't actually been living it out. We haven't been stepping into it. In fact, the law says that everybody's supposed to put up a tent, put up a temporary shelter, put up a, a booth that they make with some poles and to put branches across the top, a temporary shelter that we'll live in outside of our homes because when God redeemed us out of Egypt, when he brought us through the wilderness and he provided for us for 40 years we just had these temporary shelters and yet they hold up and and we and our, our clothes didn't wear out and our our shoes didn't get holes in them all the 40 years God provided for us every day and God himself was present with us in the cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night and we dwelt with God and that was enough 
And so this Feast of Booze was to remind God's people of that. Every year they would step into it. They would live it out. Every year they would go camping. And somewhere along the way after Joshua, it got forgotten. They might remark it on the calendar. They might do the thing, you know, officially. But the people didn't step into it. And what they're doing here, it hadn't been celebrated like this. It hadn't been celebrated like it's done here ever since the days of Joshua. And what they're saying is the people had not themselves individually done what God's word called them to do. And as we hear from God, as you have an encounter with God, as the church gathered, as you have an encounter with God in your own time with him and his word, he's going to speak to you. Where will you find his joy? Will you experience and encounter his joy over you and for you? I think it'll be in stepping into it. Even if it costs you something. But stepping into that which God has said is true for you. And that he calls you to. And it's there that you'll know him. It's there that you will experience what it is to walk in relationship with him. It's there doing what God has called us to do, stepping into it, trusting him, that we will know and follow our Jesus. Heavenly Father, would you help us to do that? Father, would you open to us your word, this firm foundation that you have given us for life and godliness, Father, would you give us understanding in it so that from your word we might know you. We privilege the word, Father, not because the Bible is the main thing. You are our one thing. And it is your word that through which you show yourself to us. And we thank you for that. So, Lord, give us lives that do respond to hear from you, to walk with you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.